The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. It's made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. State and local governments spend about $4 trillion each year. That's trillion with a T. Did you ever ask yourself, where does all that money come from? And where does it go? Who manages it? And what do citizens and taxpayers have to show for it? In this podcast, we explore the budgets, bonds, and bureaucrats at the heart of state and local government finance. This is the Public Money Pod. To the Public Money Pod. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by fiscal policy expert, journalist, researcher, and thought leader generally, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. Always, always glad to be here. And general thought leader, I like that. I've been. Uh, we're recording this what the day after the Super Bowl, um, and so congratulations to to Kansas City. Um, and I just want to add that the real Patrick Mahomes fared far better in the final championship game than he did on my fantasy football team. <laughs> I lean on him all year, him and Travis Kelsey. So I was basically like a de facto Kansas City fan this entire year. So at least at least there was that. But uh, yeah, my, my team did not do well in the championship game in my fantasy football league. <laughs> Understood. Understood. But... The, the, I mean, there's a public finance angle to this. I mean, I, I think I read that there were an estimated something in the neighborhood of like $7 billion wagered on the game between <laughs> actual wagering on the game and and fantasy football for actual money. And it's interesting that those numbers are projected to grow quite a bit. And now with the Super Bowl being in Las Vegas next year, it seems the NFL has fully embraced the idea that wagering on both the real game and the fantasy football element of the game um, is here to stay. And it'll be interesting to see uh, how that goes, because certainly a lot of people seem to enjoy the game exactly the way that you are. Yeah, yeah. Well, today we are talking, uh, continuing, I should say, really our discussion about the future of downtowns and what that means for public finance. We've uh, talked on this pod in the past about downtown economic development, rural economic development, the role of the federal money, lots of different factors that are all shaping where downtowns are today and what we can expect as far as taxes collected, dollars spent, infrastructure investments, all in support of downtowns. And the pandemic, of course, has forced these kind of existential questions about what is what does it mean to have a downtown business core? What does it mean to have people commuting in from the suburbs? Lots of the kinds of things that we've talked about here. We want to continue to build out that discussion today. We're going to have Sam Hecker, who is the chief finance officer for the Washington State Convention Center Public Facilities District, also known as the Seattle Convention Center. And he's going to tell us a little bit about the experience there running that district and uh, the way that the Seattle market has fared in this uh, increasingly competitive and uncertain world called attracting tourism, attracting conventions uh, to your downtown. Now, Liz, you've talked 
a lot of the themes that we've talked about here that particularly the the tension between downtowns and neighborhoods and how that tension has played out and is likely to be reshaped to a degree by what's gone on um, in the pandemic. You've written about this, you've done some of this in your consulting work. Uh, when you think about the, the future of downtowns, what's top of mind? Yeah, so uh, there is this, as you mentioned, that kind of conflict. And I think between do you invest, how much do you invest in downtown, your your economic center, and how much do you invest you as being the government in your in your neighborhood centers? And and that, as as you mentioned, that's um, we're seeing that a lot at Funkhauser and Associates. We are working on the comprehensive. We are working on the engagement, doing the engagement for the comprehensive plan for South Bend, and uh, those two competing priorities of downtown investment, community slash neighborhood investment. I mean, that comes up everywhere. And I think you're right. The pandemic and this, uh, the fact that people aren't always commuting downtown to an office five days a week anymore, that has heightened that that issue. And, and I don't want to call it a conflict because everybody sees the, that I, in neighborhoods see the value of investing in downtown because there is that kind of spreading out effect. And if there's nothing, if there isn't anything to attract you to downtown, it's hard to argue for visitors or anyone from the outside coming to visit your city. And so that kind of gets at that arts and culture piece too. That's something else that's surprised me. It keeps coming up as we do this work. Uh, that people really want to see more arts and culture. And, and there's been studies to this effect, too, that investments in that area um, are, can can help draw in more tourists and more, more activity downtown, maybe even more so than, I don't know, business tax breaks and that kind of thing. So it's, it's an interesting question of uh, how do you drive your economy, knowing all of these things and, and knowing that you're investing in both residents, but also the fact that you want people to come and visit. So it's, it's an interesting question. I don't have any answers, but it's, it's a good topic. I like chewing on it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and we're seeing a ton of different approaches to exactly that issue, right? There was, uh, in fact, just over this, this past weekend, the Seattle Times had a, a story that was, or a, a, one of their op-ed columnists was, uh, reflecting back on some of the challenges in in downtown Seattle and and talking about the approaches that have been uh, proposed in other places, particularly the sort of West Coast cities that have seen the, that seem to have been hit the hardest uh, with this the confluence of the work from home dynamics that have happened as a result of the pandemic, uh, coupled with you know, chronically high real estate problem crisis, transit issues and transportation issues, et cetera. And so what you've seen there in San Francisco and Portland and other places is some real some real challenges um, to their downtown business cores. The mayor of San Francisco not long proposed a, a whole series of tax breaks to try to retain and encourage business development downtown. Portland's done something similar. Leaders in Seattle are being criticized for not doing what San Francisco and, and Portland are doing. And so that's definitely one of the kind of tried and true approaches. What's been interesting to watch there is to, to the point that you were making a second ago, the arts community has pushed it back a little bit and said, look, if, if, the, if you really truly want to have something that's unique um, and durable and is going to attract people, it's not necessarily businesses, it's arts and culture amenities that are unique to that place. And the question of whether you can grow those amenities or whether you have to already have them is in some ways kind of the main question here. But there's, there's clearly a sense among some in the arts community that investments there, rather than investments in infrastructure or or businesses or the kinds of natural 
attractions that we've historically had to downtowns. That those are the kinds of investments that are going to pay much larger dividends in a post-COVID world. And so it's, it's interesting. It's it, it, the last thing you want to see is a is a fight between the arts community and the downtown leadership community. But there's kind of the makings of that in a few places at the moment. Yeah, very true. Very true. Uh, and your re- research on the lodging taxes, how does I mean, what what does that tell you in terms of any answers or just doesn't does it raise more questions uh, as to this larger point? Yeah, so it's it, I think it's very consistent with what we're talking about here. So we've got a, a paper forthcoming uh, on the on lodging taxes and uh, you can look it up at the Social Science Research Network or or other places. And it's what we did was essentially just looked at the collections of lodging taxes for large municipalities pre and post COVID or to the extent that we can look at them post COVID. The main takeaway is really quite simple, which is that there have been in places that have a lot of natural amenities, uh, central Florida, Hawaii, uh, parts of Southern California, especially as of late, those are places that have actually seen not only a recovery, but even a resurgence in tourism post COVID. The argument being that people are Everybody's working from home. People are desperate to get out. They're even more likely to take a long or extent or far away vacation to just to get further away from home when home is the same place as work. And so you've seen lots of of resurgence in the in those markets, and that's generally been a a real boon to to those kinds of of uh, places that have those sorts of natural amenities. When you go to and I don't, I don't say this critically at all, but when you go to more traditional corporate types of destinations, Indianapolis, Charlotte, um, places like that, the, the lodging tax collections in those markets are not anywhere near where they were pre-COVID. In fact, you're lucky to get to you know, 30, 40, 50% of pre-COVID levels and no reason to believe that they're going to improve um, considerably anytime soon. Very interesting bifurcated situation where you have certain kinds of markets that are growing because they have natural amenities and others that that are not and we'll have to see whether that's a permanent trend or just the the kind of immediate response to covid So we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Sam Hecker, who is the Chief Finance Officer of the Seattle Convention Center, uh, also or formerly known as the Washington State Convention Center Public Facilities District. Sam, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. So we've talked quite a few times on on this podcast so far about the changing nature of uh, travel and tourism and uh, just downtown business vibes generally since the pandemic. And obviously, uh, with the work that you do at the convention center, you are front and center. Those issues are front and center for you. If you just maybe just to start us off, give us a uh, kind of a high level look at where things are at the moment in the in the Puget Sound region with respect to travel, convention, tourism, business, uh, where you think you all fit into the maybe broader landscape that way, and and what sorts of things does that mean uh, today f- with respect to uh, to your organization's finances? Sure, thanks for the question. Uh, first of all, I just want to say that these are my opinions, only my opinions. The the PFD is a nine person appointed board from three from the state, three from the county, and three from the city to any specific data that I speak about uh, will be already released in any of our EMA disclosures. Currently, the state of uh, the convention center is one of great 
Optimism. We just completed a $2 billion expansion in the downtown core to become the largest uh, convention center complex in an urban setting. Um, with that, uh, we've had to struggle through a reduction in uh, nearly during the, the middle of COVID, an 80% reduction in lodging taxes, the, the, the movement of everyone coming to the downtown core and doing dealing with the um, hybrid work environment or working from home. Uh, during that whole period of time, the, the first round of funding for the project was completed in 2018. It was a $1.2 billion deal. Um, given the, the tax exempt rules, the idea was that another funding would take place uh, you know, two to three years after the initial funding round in order to complete the funding requirements. However, that was in the middle of uh, COVID. What we can say is that we've muddled through the closure of the facility, reductions in interest rates, the, the, the hybrid work schedule, and, and specifically to the Puget Sound, which people hear a lot about are the civility issues in the streets, the fentanyl crisis, the social service, lack of social services, dealing with mental health. Uh, those have all taken place in Seattle and our local Local news has picked up on that heavily. So we, we, we've, we were at the bullseye and center of pretty much all the issues associated with COVID. Uh, having said that, management has taken uh, significant steps to address and work through it. Um, so where we are now is we're in recovery mode. Um, our credit rating went from an A minus on our senior bonds to a B minus during the pandemic. Uh, the rating agencies have uh, now come out with a stabilized rating for, for the credit, and we're looking forward to um, what the future holds, especially with the opening of the new building. How, how long was the convention center closed? Well, Washington specifically closed earliest because our first COVID was identified here in the region, and then we stayed closed longer. So uh, the governor uh, lifted the proclamation to open up the economy in the middle of last year. Um, so wow. fortunately coming into the pandemic and associated with the, the uh, project, uh, the, the balance sheet of the convention center was, was massive. We were sitting on about $150 million in cash. Um, and so we used that strength to help muddle our way through. Um, as well as if there was any opportunity to receive aid, we, we, we went after it from uh, payroll protection program dollars, earned retention credit dollars, um, COVID relief through the state. Uh, we used market mechanisms to refund our existing debt stack. We also got a little ingenuity and we leveraged up all our parking operations to help manage the way through the pandemic. So that's like over a year, what, 15, 16 months of being closed and having to to manage through that, that's... Yep. We went from about 350 people to a core of 50 people, bullseye of the of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible to, to even manage through that in the first place. What, I imagine, obviously, it's affected your, your budget. Is, has your budget size recovered since then, or is it, or is it down? On a budget basis, it's a little hard to say because we're now in 2023 budgeting for two new buildings on a relative scale we are significantly below our uh, 
2019 levels, uh, we would have done approximately $40 million in convention center business and another $93 million in lodging tax business. And so uh, we are on relative to 2019 levels, lodging taxes have not recovered. We're about budgeting and projecting will be about 3% below our 2019 levels. On the business side, the convention center side, uh, we, we, we're budgeting for significant growth because we're opening up this new building. Actually, that's not too, too bad, I imagine, in terms of the, the lodging tax revenue, uh, a few percentage points down. I, I, it's easy for me to say, sitting over here, you're the one who has to deal with that. But um, uh, in terms of convention center business, I'm curious, like what what kind of marketing approaches have you all taken to to drum that up again and, and you mentioned too at the beginning kind of the social unrest and and, and other issues in seattle so um destination marketing organization visit seattle they are the driver of international and national events they are attracting for example fifa world cup or major league baseball uh, all-star game they're attracting the international and national um association events. The marketing cycle on those type of events is approximately three years. So business that was booked prior to the pandemic that wanted to come back, we pretty much have that, that business was set. So they're coming back and want to be in the building. The question is, uh, do we have that sales cycle kind of missed the next three years? So even though we have this new building, people want to come in that, that international national business is going to, we missed a bit of an opportunity to get them back into the building because it's a, it's a long sales cycle. Internally, we are responsible for attracting and filling in any of the, the gaps on the side on the convention center business. So those are uh, local fundraisers, uh, regional business economic forum. Seattle Convention Center has been a huge benefit of the tech sector and the fact that Seattle is home to some of the largest names in the business how much of that is going to return, um, especially now that you've seen uh, in the current environment a pullback in the tech sector. Um, there's always going to be a need, from my point of view, of having a place for people to meet uh, and that and wanting to get together. Salespeople want to talk and meet their clients face-to-face. It's much easier in a lot of cases to have that, build that relationship one-on-one versus so versus a video screen like this. Uh, and so I think that's always going to be there. On the lodging tax side, um, it's a bit of a different beast because the convention center um, has taxing authority that's coterminous with King County. So we're looking at, one, what's happening in the urban core that can be influenced by convention business, but also what's happening outside the urban core through King County, through the convention center and Seattle, we are responsible for approximately 30 to 35 percent of total room nights available in the course of a year. So there's 70 percent of the total uh, room nights available that are being driven by other economic forces, tourism, cruise ships, etc. Sounds like there's some really interesting kind of near-term technical challenges and, and kind of communication challenges there, Sam. Especially the the story that you're telling the the bond market. It sounds like, from what I'm hearing you say too, though, that the the longer, the kind of intermediate to long term play here is to try to capitalize on a lot of the natural amenities 
and natural attractiveness that the the region has. And I suppose in some sense you could call the tech sector, uh, you know, a, a resource or a, a natural amenity that a lot of other places don't have. Is that does that seem to be the, the the play here going forward? That there's there's certain places that are going to be able to attract convention business tourism those sorts of things and compared to you know others that maybe don't have those sort of unique amenities to to draw folks to and if that's the case is that does that change at all your financial management strategy the way you're talking to the credit markets is that is that really all that different maybe from what you were doing pre-covid the natural innate benefits of the pacific northwest people are going to come here to get on a cruise to go to alaska People are going to come here to go see the three or four national parks that are within less than a day's driving range. Um, that's a secular, underlying secular theme. The second one is the, a long-term secular theme associated with information technology. You have two of the largest global information technology companies in the country here generating significant amounts of, of wealth. So people want to be here. And then the relative ecosystem that comes from that, all the spin-offs and the startups and the venture capital associated with those. Then you have the cyclical things that are happening. So we're obviously in a bit of a pullback in the tech sector currently. Hospitality and leisure was in a cyclical decline as a result of COVID. That's starting to come back. So uh, I, in my mind, I'm looking at kind of a top-down perspective. What are my fundamental secular drivers and headwinds, and then what are my cyclical drivers and headwinds. And then when I get down to the very specifics, my idiosyncratic risk associated with Seattle individually, I have my underlying fundamentals that I'm looking at. And for lodging taxes, it comes down to uh, supply of rooms, occupancy, and average daily room rates. If I can break down those three underlying fundamentals, I'm going to have a pretty good sense of where I'm going to be going in the near term. Um, occupancies, uh, we have not seen occupancy levels return to pre-pandemic levels. So, for example, um, in uh, December, we were below, we'll say five, six percentage points below um, 2019 levels in occupancy. However, my average daily room rates are up significantly relative to 2019. And what would be the drivers of that? One, it's inflation. And so inflation is driving my uh, average daily room rate. And that you put those three things together and you can you can really get a sense of what the local idiosyncratic risks are associated with the lodging taxes. As a quick follow-up on that, Sam, to what extent has the lodging industry, the tourism industry's ability to staff itself, to what extent is that driving availability of rooms and then subsequently rates and ultimately lodging taxes. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, it, uh, we have these rooms available, but I can't find staff to clean them or I'm changing the way I'm cleaning. It's like, you know, please ask, do you want to have your room service every day? Having people come back in and, and work for whatever rate they're being offered has been a challenge and, uh, to pull those people back in. We are seeing that if you just look at the recent, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers, where you're seeing the most growth, and really it's the you know, 35, 36% of the total economy of the United States is in that hospitality, leisure, and essentially service industries. It's a challenge to find people to, to get into those roles. And as a result, part of, I think, what we saw last year and the demand we saw coming out of the pandemic was that we want to go into those rooms and get in there, but hey, we're going to charge you more because we're charging more for staff. We, we can't 
can't do everything we need to do. Inflation is hitting us. So uh, we definitely saw that as a real theme last year of uh, occupancy lower, daily room rates higher, and those lead into a metric called RevPAR. Uh, RevPAR is relatively equal to 2019 levels, but what are the contributors to that? Quick definition. What re- is RevPAR an abbreviation? It's, it's the multiplication of occupancy times daily room rates. Those two together equal RevPAR, and it's the metric that hotelers are using to measure their relative position compared to the prior year. So they're like, oh, RevPAR was up 3% relative to the year before or the quarter before. It just It's funny because sometimes when you're talking, sometimes you sound like a hotel operator. Sometimes you sound like a government CFO. And um, so and you're, you're you're kind of both. Uh, you're in tourism, you're in government. So maybe if you could uh, explain a little bit to our listeners wh- where exactly uh, the convention center, like a, an authority like that sits in the frame of uh, municipal government. So we are we are a quasi governmental organization. Our uh, board is appointed by three people from the state, three people from the county, and three people from the city. They'll represent uh, local labor interests, hotelers, hospitality interests, uh, finance interests. The state of Washington remits all lodging taxes within King County and Seattle to us. Um, In addition to, we have our credit enhancement facility where we collect and manage, it's a sales tax. Uh, from the state. It's used as a credit enhancement facility for our, our debt. We take and own, we own that debt. We own that revenue and I manage it and then disperse it back to the respective agencies, the city of Seattle, King County, and then the state. While I'm holding the, that money as a public treasurer, I'm able to go and invest that to essentially generate additional income to support the convention center. So we are we are running a business unit, the convention center, um, with its goal of uh, providing that public economic benefit. We are running a taxing authority and public treasury and debt management unit. Um, so I have kind of a fiduciary public public role. My, my title is 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 CFO, director of finance, treasurer, and the treasurer is an appointed position by the board. So uh, capital markets heavy, treasury heavy, local economic development authority, and then again, we fund the destination marketing organization. In all of those different roles, Sam, it seems like credit market conditions are, are going to touch everything that you, I should say, credit market conditions are going to touch everything you do in, in all of those different roles. There's been quite a lot of discussion as of late about the inverted yield curve and just the general economic uncertainty that 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 portends, how is that affecting how you discharge all of those rules today? One, from a treasury operation, I'm able to take advantage of that. So I'm receiving more dollars than I need right now because I'm collecting all this tax revenue. Um, I have multiple different investment vehicles I can take advantage of. One of those being the state runs a local investment money market. So we're looking at three months paper. I can say, all right, if I've beat all of my near-term liquidity needs, I can extend out and access the steepness of the front ends of the curve. So go out nine, nine months to a year and grab an additional 75 basis points in yield. That's significant when you're running. The goal is to run a 35 to $50 million ongoing treasury operation. That'll fund 
all of my internal accounting and finance budget. Two, when I look at the debt stack, I have to manage it in a way that, that I can take advantage of that, right? So um, yes, an inverted yield curve would pretend that there's economic, high uneconomic uncertainty that lends itself to maybe a, down, a downward uh, possibility in economic growth, which would impact people's ability to spend on hospitality and leisure, uh, what the direction of lodging taxes would be. Um, I also have like just managing the overall debt stack. We went into the market during the, the height of COVID and did not only we, we refunded half a billion dollars. So we, we did what's called a um, reverse inquiry. We went back to our investors and said, would anybody in, be interested in exchanging this debt? In that period of time, you know, rates on the front end were zero. Municipal, so we need to make a differentiation. One, what's happening in the taxable market and what's happening in the, in the municipal market, right? Because there is the muni treasury ratio that we have to understand the different dynamics of. Um, so we were looking at cheap money, at least on a relative basis, to go back into the market. So we went back and issued $350 million of new money, unrated into the market, to complete the project. We then followed that up with doing a half a billion dollar refunding of our existing $1.2 billion. In that particular environment, knowing what's happening in the capital market, our institutional investors, the, the, the mutual funds, they're, they're yield starved. They're yield and spread starved, right? You're getting nothing on the front end, and there's not, no one with the relative credit quality. You know, if you're a AAA rated entity, you're going to go out and issue debt. If you're not a AAA rated entity, which can you go and issue the debt in that type of market? And what we saw was on the new money deal, the $350 million, we were nine times oversubscribed, which would mean that there was significant demand for spread product in the market. And then the fact that we go and do this half a billion dollar refunding uh, indicated that by extending out our debt, the market was saying we need spread in the long end of the curve. And this could be who's buying in the long end of the curve. It's institutional long-end insurance companies that need tax-exempt municipal paper to fill up their asset liability matching. So paying attention to what's happening in the market overall will give us a good indication here, like when do we need to go out to the market? Do we need to be seeking capital market solutions or do we need to be going to seek governmental solutions? And that was the face what we were facing during the height of the pandemic. We had lined up $300 million in funding from county, the city, and the state, but we weren't sure through a political process if we were going to be able to do that. But the market's presented itself with an opportunity to go and use a market solution to, to support the overall operations. One, to complete the project, and two, help us manage this uncertainty now involved in the, the lodging tax. Um, so that, that really comes down to like this mixture of quasi-governmental, like how are we going to fund things? Are we going to use market? Are we going to use governmental processes and we're able to kind of access both of those? Is there like a, a concrete example you could give us of, of, of what you just described maybe to help me or, or anyone else picture that a little bit? If we use the example of the refunding that we did, we were, we were as a PFD, we were approached by our, our bankers saying, hey, we have uh, the opportunity from these clients that own your bonds to reissue and extend out your debt because they're looking for, from a portfolio management point of view, uh, they need to manage even an asset liability 
if you're an insurance company, the biggest thing you're trying to do is you're trying to manage the assets you own with the liabilities of the payout, and you do that by buying fixed income products, particularly in the longer end of the curve. Two, if I want to beat my benchmark, uh, I need spread products, meaning I need products that are going to have a margin above the underlying curve. Where can I get that? No one's issuing debt into the market because there's significant uncertainty. Uh, rates were extremely low. The Fed took front-end rates down to zero. And so looking at it from that point of view, if you have good credit quality, you can go issue debt. It's going to be cheap. So go out into the market when there's significant uncertainty and issue your debt because the cost of funds is going to be low. If you're not thinking about that as a public debt manager, public treasurer, you really should be because the shape of the curve is going to impact how you pay back the debt over the life of your, your asset that you're trying to build. For us, it was, can we actually do it? Do we have enough credit strength to do it? What is the credit story that we can tell and is it believable? So we could tell a story is that there are secular, fundamental, positive drivers in the Pacific Northwest associated with tech, the new building opening up, uh, just the natural underlying themes, national parks, good summer weather, cruise line activity. <clears throat> this will recover or this will mean revert. There's a, there's, a, there's a fundamental secular story there. I would, as a credit analyst in my former career, I'd be like, there's no credit story here, don't buy that. But we had a compelling credit story to say that there will be a recovery. We will meet mean, uh, mean reverts at some point in time. Furthermore, we are sitting on $100 million of cash, <clears throat> $130 million. So whatever volatility is coming our way, we will have the resources to handle that. And it sounds like, I mean, you can tell you clearly are telling the story well, because in the middle of, of a pandemic, when the tourism industry was upside down, you were still able to go to the market and issue debt and be oversubscribed. Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty. We did five debt issuance in one year, and we were doing a rolling restructuring, billion and a half debt stack during the pandemic and then going out and seeking new sources of funds to complete a project. And now, now we're in a position where how do we manage going forward? One of the biggest stories here is now that we have two buildings, I can tell a story that we are going to manage RevPAR in a way that will overall benefit hotelers and our debt stack because now we have two buildings. We have people coming into a building here, the existing arch facility, and we have a, another convention or trade show or whatever it is coming out of the new building, as a result, I'm able to reduce the variance between when a show is in and out on a citywide, countywide level. So instead of having a 20% variance between my RevPAR or ADR and occupancy when a show is here versus going out, because you have to come in and you have a couple days where get the tractor trailers out, dismantle, etc. I have one show coming in. I have one show leaving, and now all of a sudden I have these two levers I can pull to show that I'm managing these underlying fundamentals, even if we have these cyclical headwinds associated with the economy or the tech sector, et cetera. Well, thanks so much to Sam Hecker for taking the time to tell us about the goings-on in the Puget Sound region and help us understand some broader trends and lodging taxes and what all of that means for 
municipal finance writ large. Sam, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks again to Sam Hacker for joining us uh, for that really robust and kind of fa- and fascinating conversation about what how um, convention centers have managed during and after the pandemic. For this week's Ripped from the Headlines segment, I, I wanted to segue a little bit into uh, an issue with nonprofits. There was a story uh, in the Great Falls Tribune in, from Montana about a legislative bill <clears throat> that would charge user fees to Montana nonprofits that um, and nonprofits are not charged taxes. And it's a way to, to get um, some kind of payment in lieu of taxes or pilot from these nonprofits. The, it's House Bill 391. And uh, it, uh, like I said, it would put a user fee on a host of tax exempt profits. Uh, it would be collected by a city or town, by counties. That money would be put towards road maintenance, police, fires, all, all those kinds of local expenses. This, however, is not the only bill being tossed around this year. Uh, taxation of nonprofits comes up a lot. And governments, local governments in particular, are, are always trying to figure out how to, how to get more money, get any money from nonprofits. Um, I remember back when I was a D.C. reporter uh, talking with then-CFO Natwar Gandhi, and he was looking out of his window. And as we know, D.C. is like half federal government land, museums, all that stuff. And he looks out his window and he, he's like, half of this I can't tax. <laughs> and so and, he, and he's not the only CFO that feels that way. I've talked to a lot of chief financial off- officers who, on the one hand, obviously know what nonprofits do for their cities. On the other hand, they would really like to get some tax revenue for them from them so that they can pay for keeping up the roads, streets, and fire department calls and all those other things. And that's kind of the, the push-pull that is the state-local, the local, really, relationship with nonprofits. To me, what the what the real issue is, is that on the nonprofit side, I mean, I don't think anybody disputes the fact that nonprofits, a lot of them, essentially provide or supplement government services without actually being a part of the government. A lot of nonprofits have standing contracts with governments, and this is really, really true of housing and healthcare and, and social services. Governments lean on nonprofits really hard in those areas, and so as as part of the this you know quasi government not government existence that that is uh, for the case for a lot of these nonprofits, they don't have to pay uh, property taxes. That's sort of their what they get back. Um, but I think from the government side. When you look at museums and other things, um, there there are some nonprofits, colleges and universities. That's always one of the biggest. Uh, you know, there are some nonprofits that really that do bring in a lot of people. Their their influences beyond just we're providing a service. They have an economic development impact as well. And so um, there are things. There are a lot of the larger ones do have a payment in lieu of taxes. However, a lot of times that can be optional. There was a case in Boston a while back uh, that. Uh, they had set up these agreements, payments in lieu of taxes, but then there's the expected revenue that the city is budgeting on getting from them, and then there's actually what the the nonprofit sends that year. So it is it's not a hundred percent reliable, and and that's that's kind of the 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 reason that you see cities sort of trying to get what they can from nonprofits, and and whether it's justified or not, it's I don't I feel like it's not my place to say, but this is definitely something that that happens a lot. 
Yeah, no, that's a that's a great article, and, I, and thanks for for bringing it to our attention. It, it's such a tough issue, and as you said, the, the the challenge with particularly big nonprofits is is that they can be just as influential and and just as central to the health and economic well being of a downtown or a community overall. One of the things I like to tell my students is that nonprofits are big business, and that they have uh, as much <clears throat> clout in as uh, as as just about any other big institution. It goes back to what we were just discussing with Sam Hecker. It, when you think about the future of downtowns and the future of, of what's going to draw people from within a community or even outside a community to come to a, a downtown business core or to come to some sort of a regional attraction, it probably has some sort of nonprofit component. It's probably a museum, a park, a university, one of these cultural institutions that have historically not been subject to local property taxes, local sales taxes and the like. And yet uh, in a world where there's less commercial real estate being taxed and where there's less sales tax being generated downtown, it begs the question of how are you going to pay for the police, fire, infrastructure, other essential services that you need just so that you can have a downtown or a cultural district or whatever it might be. This, this challenge with nonprofits has been going on for a long time. You mentioned several of the past attempts. There've been similar kinds of of um, attempts at taxation that have been called something other than taxation. The example I'm thinking of is it's now several years ago, but the city of Milwaukee, which has lots of great cultural institutions downtown, particularly the, the Milwaukee County Museum, which is a huge campus in downtown Milwaukee, had at one point explored what they call the light tax. And the idea was that they were going to create a, a utility that would be just like a stormwater or it was modeled after a stormwater utility where uh, any any light, any street light that was illuminating a part of the sidewalk adjacent to the property that was held by a cultural institution by by a non taxable entity would pay a utility tax for the the street lighting. You know, and that was an attempt just to try to say this is an essential service that needs to be provided, and in the absence of property and sales and other general taxes, we don't have a revenue source for it. So there have been some very creative attempts at this in the past, and it can really stoke those kind of town-gown tensions. And unfortunately, the finance folks find themselves often directly in the middle of those debates. And like you said, it's not our place to say that it's good, bad, or otherwise. Every community is a little different. Those trade-offs are going to be a little bit different every place. But this has this this issue of the role of nonprofits in communities has become a, a finance issue, and finance folks find themselves squarely in the center of debates that they've weren't necessarily involved in not that long ago. That light tax reminds me of the window. It was a window tax, I think, in a colonial era thing in uh, not just here, uh, but uh, abroad in Europe, too. And for every window you had to have, it was taxed. And so you had a lot of people boarding up their windows to avoid it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It made you wonder uh, if uh, nonprofits in Milwaukee would say, well, let's, you know, do away with streetlights then, or let's have people hold candles or or whatever it could be. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the, uh, the goal of Avoiding taxes is uh, as as old as we've had that as long as we've had cities, I suppose. The 
Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is made possible in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual, Cumberland Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. To learn more about the center, check out our website, municipalfinance.uchicago.edu. If you'd like to ask a question for our extra credit segment, send a voice memo to publicmoneypod at uchicago.edu. To see more of Liz Farmer's work, visit her website, farmersfieldonline.com, and her Substack, which is substack.lizfarmer.com. And you can also find her at Twitter at LizFarmerTweets. And thanks, as always, to our esteemed producer, Eric Gaber. If you like the podcast, be sure to follow us, drop a review, and tell your network. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time.